Gara watched her children from her perch in the sky. Many of them were weak, she noticed, weak and ugly. But she noticed this only in the sense that one season turns into the next. Their ugliness did not move her. After all that had happened, she dared not care for them too much. Time and time again, they had ignored her warnings and her pleas, and now her heart had become guarded. Her sympathy had run dry. She watched them wearily, almost bored. The will to fight had long died within them. It had been replaced by apathy. Her children wandered the earth without purpose. They never dared set down roots. After all, water was known to swallow up entire cities, and the sun rose eager to bleach fields so nothing could grow. Winds would shatter their walls if they dared build them, and it would send trees onto their children's backs to strike them down. It was best to just keep moving from cave to cave. And so they never stopped to know a thing, never paused long enough to care for a place, never picked apart an idea for invention. Because of this, they cared deeply about nothing. They are never going to survive long enough to change, Gara realized after several of these wandering, hopeless generations had marched along like ants without a hill or a queen. Not unless, she thought, I do something about it. As so often in these situations, Gara had an idea. It was risky, and it carried a price. Gara realized that if she wanted her children to amount to anything, to regain their former vigor, she had to force them to fight. She would have to weed out the weak among them. She looked down onto the earth with its rivers risen high, its swamps like patchwork. Good, she thought. She needed the musty, moist land for her plan to work. Gara came down to earth and became the tiny things that destroyed her children from inside. She turned into the worms and the bugs and all the diseases they carried on their backs. She lived as them and learned their weaknesses, and then she patched them up with her own strength. The new bugs could travel faster, live longer, infiltrate more easily. After she had fortified disease, she flew back up to her perch to watch, giddy with excitement. She giggled as tiny black flies flew across the land and swath, laying their eggs into her children's skin to multiply. Cooed as bugs with deadly stingers sunk them into her children's arms and legs, making them sweat and turn red and see things that were not really there. In her final, most ruthless feat, Gara had given bugs shaped like tiny strings the ability to fly. The string bugs used their newfound wings to spread like wildfire. Liberated, they were so deadly that soon no one dared so much as whisper its name. Gara watched as her children coughed up blood and cried bloody tears. And she had been right. Only the strongest survived. Even though only few of her children now remained in the world, their muscles were taut, their minds quick and daring. Gara looked down at them and felt satisfied. It was quite possible they were strong enough to endure the coming darkness and live. This has been your early morning gospel of Gara, Alethro Six, The Years of Diseases. May we tread lightly upon the earth today and every day henceforth. There's a lot I don't know about the true believers of Gara, but there are things I do know, because my father lived in the same house as I did until I was almost six. I know 
that the things he did after I turned four were likely things related to becoming and being a true believer. After he was taken away, I played everything he did during that time over and over again in my head. I tried to figure out the exact moment he decided that my mother and I were not enough. Tried to pinpoint when, exactly, he decided not to love me, simply because I was a child. I focused not on the things that normal people would say or do, not the things people like you and I, who simply believe in the gospel, believe and repeat. Instead, I focused on the things that made him an extremist, a fanatic, picked at them like a scab that wouldn't come off, like the fact that my father believed the planet to be doomed unless humans stopped procreating altogether. No one else believed that. They paid their taxes and, I believe, loved their children. Or his belief that the earth was once inhabited by millions of people. There's maybe 100,000 total now. So how could that be? Or, even more extreme, that people once knew how to fly, that they once called to each other through invisible tubes. If that were true, why even call us human? Why not just call us gods? A lot of these ideas I overheard him saying when he thought I wasn't listening, when he thought no one was listening. Him and his strange friends would have secret meetings in the woods. My mother worked all day, and I didn't have many friends. So boredom drew me into those woods on my lonely afternoons. One day, without intending to, I stumbled across my father and three other men, as well as a woman. They were down below, as I was trailing along the top of a ravine covered in dense bush. It was easy to crouch down among the low branches and remain unseen while I watched them in the crevice below. They were shirtless, all of them, even the woman. They were talking about the best routes for a trip they were taking, though I don't remember where they were going. It looked like they had painted their chests with large black lines, all except the woman. Maybe it was too complicated to paint her chest, I thought, as I looked over the mounds of her breasts. The others all had the same marking. But it wouldn't be until much later, after I snuck up on them while they were drawing the symbol into the forest ground, that I would come to understand the symbol's meaning. A large circle that was the earth, and inside of it, the letter H for humans. Then they would chant, No hue, no hue, while crossing out the H, turning it into four tiny triangles facing each other. But they chant quietly for fear of being heard. I thought the whole thing was kind of funny. Maybe, if I had known the meetings were deadly serious, I would have told someone. But I was four, maybe five years old. I'd watch their secret meetings and then go home and play with my straw dolls. Their games didn't seem so different from mine. Standing on the muddy planks in the park, my eyes are frozen on the symbol, etched into the husband's chest as I remember the woods from my childhood. I have spoken without meaning to, and I can feel everyone's eyes shift onto me. Never mind. I thought I recognized it. 
Sorry. I mumble, embarrassment flushing my cheeks. I feel like an idiot, but better that than everyone knowing about my father. I keep staring down at the body until I can feel their looks returning back to it as well. When I look up, only Minu is still looking at me. A curious ripple plays across her face, but then we lock eyes. She averts her gaze, just like the others. Well, it's pretty weird, she says, and then motions to some of the deputies to hoist the body onto a plank. Turning to Kane, she says, You can come by for the autopsy in about an hour. Maybe, in the meantime, you can figure out what the symbol means. It might be useful. Kane just nods, avoiding her gaze by staring off somewhere behind her in the swamp. Rose, you're with me, he says as he turns to leave and I follow him along the planked path. We're not really going to find out what that symbol means, are we? I say when we're out of earshot. Of course not. His tone lets me know I'm as idiotic as I feel for speaking up. We get to the edge of the park and find our horses, meet midway and saddle up. Do we tell them? I ask Kane, and he seems to consider this. I'll think on it. We might have to notify the Constitute, have them deal with it. He says it like he's tossing them a box of bugs. Besides, he goes on, what really matters, Rose, is that we got the guy. Case closed, good clean law work, and we get the credit. He makes a clicking sound with his tongue, then rides ahead of me. When we get to the law offices, Kane and I sit in the small room with the large table and go over what to tell Manu and the other deputies. Then Kane composes a letter, seals it, and has one of the deputies, whom he swears to secrecy, write it up to New Haven Constitute headquarters. It's out of our hands now. An hour later, Manu knocks on the door, and we follow her across the street to the medical offices. He's pretty carved up, but only what we already saw earlier, over in the park. She says this while leading us into her exam room. Honestly, it looks to me like he tripped and fell into the swamp. The bloating of the body indicates that he likely fell in the same day he killed a second victim, so at least a full day and a half. She stops talking and looks at me. Are you all right, Deputy Rose? Without realizing, I've pulled my neck square up over my nose and mouth. The room smells like the swamp and worse. I'm good. My words are muffled, and she smiles almost kindly at me, then goes on. There are no other wounds on the body as far as I can tell. The tattoo in his chest, while strange, isn't what killed him. It's possible he was drunk and then simply fell, drowned in the swamp. I'll have the medical test done later today, but as far as I can tell, this was an accident. Lucky for us. Kane eyes the husband's bloated body. The man's eyes are swollen shut, as if he himself doesn't want to see what he's become. His skin is slick like an eel's and appears paper-thin. Blue veins streaking across it and random branches as if the swamp moved them around after he was dead. Manu has cut along the middle of his chest, and it's splayed open like the wings of a bird. On the wing's underside are the markings of a true believer, and I have to crouch down to get a better look. The tattoo is sloppy, its edges the only part of his body that are slightly ragged and have any color. Red, raised, almost angry. Manu, can you test to see if he had an infection? We have a panel, she says. I'll test for what we have. I nod in response. Maybe he was sick. Maybe the mark was festering, 
He could have been running a fever. Maybe this contributed to his falling into the swamp. Something inside the man, something near his back, moves and is released from below out into the room. The smell is like a bucket of dead fish left in the sun for a week. I have to look away and hold my breath. All right, let us know about the test later, Manu. Kane nods towards the door, and I gratefully push my way outside, mumbling my thanks to Manu on the way out. Kane and I hang around the law office for a little longer, but it's a quiet night, like the city knows something big has happened, and it would be best not to piss off the law. The sun starts to set, and I am relieved of my duty. Tomorrow, Kane and I will file the official paperwork on the murders, and hopefully he'll sign off on my sheriff's exam. Praying no more deputies come to wake me, I sit on the bed in my hotel room. My feet smell like swamp water as I pull my boots off, and I open the window as wide as it goes to let my own stench escape. I place my second set of clothes out on the small table to air out. They're my good set, the one that I took with me so I would look nice if I passed my exam. I stroke the sleeve of the white shirt into which Prudence has stitched tiny flowers and leaf patterns. I hope she'll be proud of me. Bone tired, I crawl into bed. The swamp smell has woven into the fabric of everything I was wearing, and I can still smell it, even though my clothes are hanging out the window. Darkness settles over the room as the last few splinters of sun disappear from the window. I lie there, staring at the ceiling, a fuzzy white in the moonlight. The faces of the women are waiting for me behind the last layer of wakefulness. I can feel them, and so my eyes remain open. After lying there for a while, the urge to check on my clothes, to make sure they are placed neatly and have not somehow been tainted by the swamp water from my other clothes that I tore off earlier, takes a hold of me and will not let go. I stand to find my lek box and bulb. The bulb is next to the wave box on the table, and I find the lek box on the floor and attach it by its plug. Churning the lek box, the room fills with a warm light, and I walk across it. My clothes are gone. In their place is a small box filled to the top with glistening jewels. Next to the table is Kane, his hands on his hips. These are for you, Harper. I squeal with excitement, but then the bulb goes out, and I am no longer holding the lek box. But Kane is still there, talking to me in the dark. These jewels are for you, Harper. Think about it. Think. Startled, I take a step back and trip over something on the floor. The bulb flickers without my churning it. The room becomes brighter and brighter until everything is covered in a white glowing light. As I look down onto the floor beside me, I see that I have tripped over a small bowl also filled to the brim with jewelry. Bracelets with blue stones, neck plates with carvings of the gospel, hairpins and gentle hues of orange and red, all strewn across the floor. Around me, entirely covering the floor of my hotel room, are more boxes and bowls and even mugs. All of them are spilling over with jewels, draped over the edges. I try to get back to the bed, but when I turn around, the bed is gone. It's just more stones, gleaming in brilliant colors, stacked high into a big mound. I start to dig into them. I'm tired. I want to go back to sleep. 
I want to find my heavenly mattress guard, damn it. Stones and strings of metal go flying through the air, but I continue to dig for the bed. Finally, I see the mattress. There's a body. It's warm, and it feels nice, and I clear the mattress enough to slide in next to it. Jack turns to me. Both of us are naked. I've been waiting for you, he says, and I smile. Unlike our stumbling in the dark of last time, this time the room is bright and I can see his face. The power of an invisible lek box, powering dozens of magical bulbs that float somewhere above us. I caress the small of his back and he smiles. His hair falls into his eyes and he pushes it out of his face. He's glowing under the light of the bulbs. I touch his elbow and he stretches out his arm to pull me in and I catch sight of his chest. And then I scream. When I wake, it's still dark out, but I can smell morning through the open window. I'm lying on the cold floor next to the bed. My muscles ache and dull stiffness. I check myself for bug bites, but there are none. I crawl back under the net, hoping I didn't scream loudly as before. But there are no sounds of nosy neighbors in the hallway. Tears, Roll down my face as I wrap myself in the blanket of the bed and curl up until I can hear the first words of the gospel from outside. Then I get up and churn out my own. The morning passes in a haze. At the law offices, Kane and I complete the required forms sitting in the tiny room. He gives me the afternoon off, assures me that I've passed, and he'll sign my sheriff's certificate tomorrow morning before I leave. I'll take care of notifying the wife of her husband's passing. I look at him, biting my lip. Are you sure you want to do that on your own? Kane nods. You've been through enough, Harper. This wasn't the kind of case anyone should have to deal with during their sheriff's exam. But you held your own. I can't help but smile. As I stand to leave, Kane invites me to the party that night. We do it every time we close a big case. Fanny and Jax, you'll be there? I nod but I'm preoccupied. Jack's berries are still in the satchel under my bed, and the dream from last night, I can't shake it. I almost tell Kane about it. He might think it's funny that he was in my dream, but then I don't. I feel giddy walking down the street of New York. Tomorrow, I'm going to be a sheriff. I'm exhausted, but also the youngest sheriff of her own outpost, as far as I know, and I have to contain the slight bounce that tries to slide into my step. But when I return to the hotel, I pace the small room. Still giddy, but it also feels like a motor is going in my chest, unwilling to turn off. Periodically, I look out of the window, hoping to catch a glimpse of the small growler. It didn't show for breakfast this morning, and I haven't seen it since yesterday. Once I've paced off some of my nervous energy... I lie down on the bed to think. Staring blankly up through the bug net at the ceiling paint, my brain is working overtime. Something isn't adding up. The husband showing up dead. It's just... It's just... It's just too neat. I declare and swipe the bug net out of the way before I roll off the bed and holster up. If I really am missing something, I'm going to figure out what it is. It's probably nothing but my conscience needs to be clean before I leave. I need to have done everything that could have been done when Moon and I ride out of this town tomorrow. Also, I need the strange dreams to stop, 
and I don't think they will until I can be sure we did everything right. I let Moon out of her pen and start heading towards the park. Willie Hano is the one who found the body. Willie Hano is where I'll start. The mounds of the swamp are clear that day. Moon and I ride up, and I can see the women in their colorful dresses, their movements clear, even as early evening settles in. I tie Moon up on the side of the park and walk along the planks towards the hills, my palm resting heavy on the butt of my gun. Willie Hano is not keen to talk to me. Walking among the hills, invisible to the other women without Cain by my side, I eventually find him atop the central mound. He's standing in front of several pelts that he's attached to a frame of wood so they can dry out in the hot air. A knife dangles in between his fingers, and he's cleaning it slowly with a dirty cloth. Hunting is forbidden. My voice is clear, even though I'm shocked by his absolute brazenness. Hunting is not only forbidden, it's sacrilege. He turns to me, grinning wide. Are you here to arrest me, little deputy? I want to correct him, tell him I will be sheriff by morning, but realize there's no point. Where's Kane? His eyes graze along the gun in my holster, and for a moment he seems ill at ease. He's busy, telling the poor wife of the guy that washed up here this morning that her husband is dead. I don't bother keeping my voice down, and out of the corner of my eye I can see that several women hesitate as they pass us by. Willie Hayno shoots the morning glances, and they move away from us quickly. What do I care? Willie Hayno takes a step closer, the knife still moving back and forth in his hands as he wipes away at it. Guy was one of those nutbags, one of those crazy maniacs that hates women. Why should I feel bad for him? I love women. At this, he spreads his arms wide, knife in one hand, brown cloth in the other. Well, I don't think his wife thought that he hated her. He clearly was pretending when he was with her, then. Willie says, self-satisfied grin that could best be described as impish. This is not a conversation I feel like having. How did you know it was him? Willie looks at me as if he is bored now. Because I have eyes. Now, please leave. Night is about to fall, and we will have customers coming around, and quite frankly, you are a buzzkill, little deputy woman. The urge to introduce his face to the butt of my pistol surges through me, but I hold back. For a second, I consider writing him the large fine associated with poaching, but chances are he'll end up down in the jail soon enough, and it's not like it will stop him from doing whatever he wants. Well, thanks for nothing. I say curtly, walk down the mound and jump over the small crevice of wet that separates it from the next. Just as I come to the edge of the park and am untying Moon from a tree, one of the swamp women appears beside me out of nowhere. Whoa, there, where did you come from? I check my pockets as if she's already robbed me, but she ignores this and talks in quick, quiet words as if Willie Hano can hear us all the way from his hut. It wasn't the guy. I look at her, confused. What wasn't the guy? The guy they found this morning. He's been around here before, but I don't think he killed Catalina. The skin on my forehead pulls into a frown. He could have lost it, found his strength. The woman is frail and dirty, and a little too eager to talk to me. It's hard to take her seriously. The only color that clings to her body is in the form of a ragged yellow dress, which only makes the contrast to her pallor more jarring. 
The thought crosses my mind that maybe she wants protection from Willie. You trying to get out of here? She shakes her head vehemently. No, I love Willie, but I also love Catalina, and we're scared. This isn't the first time it's happened. My sister disappeared a year ago, and she wouldn't have left. She was fertilized with Willie's seed, and she was so happy. She'd convinced Willie to keep it, to not let the river have it, that she could pay the tax herself. She would have never left like that, not with the baby on the way, and not without me. Just, it makes no sense. She looks down at her dirty, bare feet, dangerously close to Moon's hooves. It wasn't him, the guy from this morning. So whoever it really is, he's still out there, and you have to catch him before he does it again. I say nothing. Wait for her to go on as she fights tears, small shudders shaking her frail shoulders. He did scream at her, the night before she disappeared, that is true. Screamed at her to return some bracelet. Here she pauses, as if unsure if she should say, but I can tell that she wants to. Is there anything else? I make my voice sound dismissive, as if what she's given me isn't enough to affirm my doubts, and she sings. There is one more thing. The husband, Catalina's lover, he wasn't like he was this morning, all covered in black lines and stuff. I could see them from my porch. Catalina had him in her tent that night. She shrugs. There's not a lot of protection to the outside, and I was bored. She flushes, then goes on. What I mean is, I could see them while they were naked. Obviously, they were naked. A little nervous laugh followed by a seriousness on her thin face. But the point is, his chest was bare, blank, you know? When he was with Catalina three days ago, he didn't have that mark on his chest. Not a single line. It was just a month or two before my father tried to set the school on fire and was sent away when I stumbled upon yet another meeting in the woods. They were already chanting their no hue chants, and I followed along, like it was any other song, crouched nearby, hidden under a bush. It was the same members as before, but someone new had joined them. A man, very young, even I could tell he was younger than the others. The chants were different that day, more subdued, slower. The woman had a needle in her hand, and the man who was younger than the rest of them took off his shirt and laid onto the symbol that they'd carved into the dirt. The woman dipped the needle into a little tin pot, and I watched in horror as she transformed the tanned chest of the boy, because he was merely a boy, into the symbol he was sprawled out on. He had grimaced, his face a face of torment the entire time I watched. It was a very slow process, and my father and the other two men chanted the entire time. No, Hugh. No, Hugh. Eventually, I got bored and went home to play with my dolls. Two days later, I set out into the woods again, and this time I deliberately went to spy on my father and his strange friends. They sat around in a circle, their shirts off. The boy's chest was puffy and red where the needle had stuck him. The freshness of the mark, fighting against becoming part of him. Red, raised, almost angry. The mark on the husband was new. But how new? Did he get it the day he died? I nod at the woman, turn to Mount Moon. When I turn, still lost in thought, the woman is gone. No bright yellow dress in sight. I trot aimlessly through the streets for a while, 
giving Moon her exercise and me time to think. The sun starts to set. The jewel. The mark. How does the jewel connect to the mark of a newly minted true believer? The fact that he was a true believer does explain one thing about the killings. Both women were pregnant. Children can't end the world if they are never born. Maybe the true believers have become even more extreme since my father was one of them. Maybe the initiation rites now include murder. I could ask him. It's possible he knows, still has connections. But I can't imagine talking to him in his prison clothes, him trying to apologize, while all I'm doing is trying to get information out of him. I turn my thoughts away from my father and focus back on the case. There is a reason I dreamt of the jewels, glistening and taunting me with their brilliance. And of course there is one part I keep glossing over because I don't want to imagine it. My Jack blind spot. Or maybe it's just a spot he blinds in people with his beer made of secret berries. And with a jolt, I remember where I saw a tin of jewels before. The tin in his room. The stuff people leave behind in the bar, he said. But as hard as I strain my mind, I can't remember any of them being blue. Then again, it was dark. Also, it would mean that he'd gone to kill Catalina the moment I left his bed. The thought chills me, and I stroke my hands against Moon's neck. After I've returned her to the barn, I can see that the party at Fanny and Jack's is already in full swing. Deputies are mingling with the local drunks, and everyone is in good spirits. No one is getting arrested tonight. Maybe I could talk to Jack, just to make sure. There's no way he did it. I would have felt that. I know I would have. Being as close to him as I was that night. So yes, I'll just make sure. Maybe have a beer. Besides, it would be bad form for me not to attend the party. I push my way through the small group of people outside, claps that on my shoulder, congratulatory smiles. I respond in kind. But what I really want is to find Jack. Is your brother here? I didn't see Kane as I made my way towards the dense crowd, and it's just as well. I don't want to get distracted. Fanny is pouring beer with both her hands, and the sight of it makes my stomach lurch. The thought of its taste now linked inextricably to the beast that chased me and Moon through the dark woods. No, he's out somewhere. Great time to leave me here alone. She sounds angry and rolls her eyes. But she's a sister, and I can tell that she isn't really, truly angry with Jack. When will he be back? I holler at her over the crowd, but she just shrugs and runs off to collect empty mugs. Jack isn't here, which means upstairs is unguarded. Before I know it, I am making my way towards the stairs, pushing people out of the way as gently as possible, trying to blend in, not looking too purposeful in my mission, pretending to be slightly drunk. I'm just going to take a quick look around. Maybe there's something he hid from me that night. I don't want to think the word evidence, because I don't want to think that Jack has done anything. Despite the secret berries and his lies to cover it up, he's probably just a normal guy. But, in the off chance I slept with a cold-blooded killer, it would be best to find out sooner, rather than later. The stairs creak as I step onto the bottom one, and I stop, cringing in the dark. But the bar outside is too loud for anyone to hear, 
and Fanny is too preoccupied to notice I snuck behind her and up the stairs. I try to think light thoughts as I slowly feel my way up. I can't be gone for too long. Someone might notice. Kane is here somewhere. He might realize that I've gone missing if someone mentions they've seen me. I feel my way with my hands as I go up, up in the pitch black of the stairwell. The landing upstairs is illuminated only by the moon that hovers outside a small window. The floor beneath me hums and beats with the drunks downstairs, and my fear of collapsing floors returns and makes my chest tighten. I walk like a wounded deer to Jack's room, open the door gently with two fingers. It's dark. There is a lek box at the window, its shape vaguely illuminated. I pick it up and feel around for a bulb. When I find it, I plug it in and churn. The bulb glows weakly as I churn slowly, quietly, as if someone were right outside the room and might hear. It's cleaner than I realized during my drunken encounter. Spotless. The bed is neatly made. There are a few stacks of paper on a table next to the window, a nightstand that I know has sponges in it, a trunk that when I open it only contains a few pieces of clothing. Where is the tin I knocked over? I rifle through the contents of a basket that is placed beside the door. Otherwise, the room is empty. Jack has a book in the basket. There are also a few tools made of wood that I don't recognize. I move them aside and push away a cloth, and there it is. My fingers close around the cool tin in which Jack kept the jewels. It's empty. What are you doing in here? I turn around, one of the tools raised above my shoulder, ready to attack. Fanny is standing over me, and she's pissed. In one hand, she is holding a large key. An impressive amount of mugs is clutched against her opposite arm. I lost something here the other night. I stammer and let the tin drop back into the basket, lower the strange tool down next to it onto the cloth. The other night? Fanny looks confused, but then shakes her head as if she's just now remembering. Oh, yeah. Well, please don't go through Jack's stuff. You can ask him when he gets back tomorrow. So she does know when he'll be back. I follow her downstairs like a scolded child. There are things I should ask her, but I'm not sure she'd be very responsive now. We walk out into the bar, and there are cheers, I realize, not for me, but for Fanny and the extra mugs. In the uproar, I dip back into the crowd. Jack will be back in the morning, but I'm not sure I can wait. The jewels in his room have disappeared. He's somewhere, out there, probably in his field of berries doing Gara knows what. I need to tell someone. We need to go find him. I look around the bar at everyone's happy faces. Someone grabs me by the shoulder, and I turn to find Kane staring at me with his piercing blue eyes. But I don't want to feel hopeful about things with him right now. I want to focus. The jewel, the tattoo, the women with their wombs splayed open. Something flew under the radar, and I need to tell Kane. We need to figure this out. Kane, I think we missed something. His ear is hot against my nose, and he flinches. I'm talking too loud. Harper, it's over. I don't think we missed our shot. He laughs and takes a swig from his mug. No, I mean, I don't, I don't think the husband did it. Kane wrinkles his nose and buries his face in his mug. You need to relax, he says, handing the empty mug to a passing deputy who takes it without a word. 
Tomorrow you'll be sheriff of your own outpost. And we'll, we'll keep in touch. He actually winks at me, and I grin sardonically. It's a promise of sorts, a proposition. But I'm not drunk, and I want to do something, anything. I feel guilty, somehow. But I can't for the life of me figure out why. Kane grabs my shoulder and pulls me closer. He's so drunk he doesn't care who sees, and several of the deputies raise an eyebrow or turn to snigger to each other, but they all make sure Kane doesn't see them do it. Harper, the case is over. It was easier than we thought, and that's okay, you know? His speech is so slurred, I almost expect him to hiccup. Then his soggy lips are on mine. Now where's that hotel room of yours? 